Ty Brown here with this week's episode entitled Teenage Drivers and In-Laws, The Root of Human Conflict. This is a conceptually deep episode where we're going to explore a few different questions. First, why we are prone to creating conflicts. Also, why we unconsciously value problems more than solutions. Say what? And lastly, how our mindset can change everything. For those of you hearing this uh, for the first time, hearing the show for the first time, uh, our mission here is to resolve disputes and conflicts, issues, pain points in your life using alternative dispute resolution. I hope you're ready to go. It's happening in three, two, one. Podcasting from conciliators. This is the Ty Brown Show. If you're a human and you think you might have to interact with other humans at some point and you'd like that to go well, then listen up. Oh, yeah. It's time to get cozy with conflict. Let's go. All right, all right, all right. So the roots of human conflict. This should have been an easy one for everybody. Obviously, it's teenage drivers and in-laws, right? Now, I'm, the, the, the title of this is purposely misleading, but I knew it would draw you in. Um, we are going to have a story about a teenage driver and also a story about in-laws. And the cool thing is, this is our very first listener submission. We got our first listener submission. It was a story about in-laws. Uh, they wanted me to dive into analysis and um, whether there might be some alternative dispute resolution techniques that could help with the situation. So we're going to feature that story. Of course, we'll make it anonymous, changing all the names. And um, and um, anyway, so we'll, we'll get into that later. So stats. That's right. We are sharing stats of the show because we want all of you to be united in our effort to launch the alternative dispute resolution revolution bringing ADR to the masses instead of just for parties who are in litigated cases. Um, so here's our stats. Uh, we had that leaked episode I mentioned. It was just the introduction, uh, nothing real juicy in there. But it, it has uh, somehow gotten 31 downloads despite you know not having really pushed it out there. So that's good, 31 accidental downloads. Um, so it's better than starting from zero. I, I'm actually really happy with that. So anyway, if you want, uh, if you like the show, go ahead and share this with your friends, your family, uh, subscribe. And, uh, and I think if you subscribe to the show, you'll get little notifications on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast uh, when there's a new episode. So anyway, uh, I'll be launching these weekly. There's a reason that it's been a little bit goofy. That leaked episode wasn't supposed to get out. Um, and iTunes, which is the most popular platform for listening to podcasts, they recommend that when you launch a podcast, you do it with three episodes. And uh, I don't know all the reasons why that is. But um, anyway, that that's that's why it's been, you know, a couple of weeks since that intro leaked is I've been uh, building up our first three episodes. So anyway, now there's going to be three all available at once. And uh, that explains the funny timing. Uh, regularly going forward, I plan on releasing an episode every Monday and they'll be probably fairly short. I want to keep them around 30 minutes in length. Uh, my last one was a little long. We'll try to finish up a little faster today. Okay. Um, hmm. 
you know, especially th- this would be especially a good podcast to share with those people that you just can't stand, right? Maybe uh, who knows? Maybe they will. Uh, maybe they'll realize how miserable they are to be around and change their ways. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It'd probably be insulting if you share it with them. So you know, be careful. All right. So this episode is a continuation of the last one, which was on mindset. Uh, mindset is the prerequisite to successfully applying tools of dispute resolution. And so this episode, oh man, this is where we're really, I mean, we are really getting into it because, um, boy, I mean, the, the power of mindset is, it is astounding. It is astounding. And so if you're ever going to re-listen to episodes, make sure it's this one because, well, unless I totally slaughter it, uh, it should be really helpful to you uh, in resolving issues that you're dealing with in your life. Okay, so here it goes. The roots of conflict. Yes, the roots of conflict, they go real deep. Um, (laughs) Because they go deep, it makes extraction very difficult. I saw a, a Facebook picture of a neighbor of mine who was taking out a tree and the roots just kept going further and further and further. It was it was amazing to see the root system of this tree. But that's that's not so unlike conflict. Uh, conflict roots, they go deep and they make extraction difficult. So we're going to talk about the first step in getting those roots out. Okay, so I'm going to start with a statement. It's a true or false statement. Here it goes. Often, we don't want to give up our conflicts. True or false? Hmm. So could it possibly be true that we want them? I contend that it is true that we want our conflicts. Hmm. You may not believe me, but I will prove it to you. Maybe. (laughs) Okay. So here goes. Think about somebody in your life somebody that you're in conflict with. This is someone who really gets under your skin. You've lost sleep replaying conversations with this person or thinking about things you'd like to say. <laughs> you, you have negative feelings towards this person with, with regularity, maybe even chronic, you know, constant, constantly. Um, this could be someone from work. It could be someone in your family. It could be extended family, like an in-law. Or, you know, it just, it just occurred to me that I, I need to probably say this, just to be clear. My in-laws are actually pretty amazing. Um, they are not in conflict with anyone, really. I mean, they're, they're exceptionally wonderful. Um, and so, in case, in case they ever do decide to listen to this, yeah, know that this isn't about you. I love you guys. All right, moving on. Okay, so we're thinking about this person. Maybe it's someone from your past uh, that you're in conflict with. Maybe it could even just be like a Facebook friend that, that just every post you just you know, you get nauseated reading. Or it could even be someone that you hardly know, but they've hurt someone that you love, someone close to you, right? Oh, very often those are the people that like really get the wrath, right? <laughs> when you're in protective mode. Okay, so you've got your person, right? Okay, picture that person. Now, if I could snap my fingers and solve your problems with that person, would you want them as your new best friend? Hmm. Most people say no. Most people say no. 
But why not? Why not? Well, it's because you need the conflict with this person in order to continue to make justification possible. Without the conflict, you can't justify the way you feel. So, why are you justifying? Better yet, what are you justifying? Well, you've, you have thought bad th things about this person. You have probably assumed bad intentions. You've likely talked about them behind their back. You've likely gossiped about them. You have probably even treated them poorly. Um, well, not necessarily, but probably. So, in summary, you have seen them with contempt. Contempt, remember, that's beneath consideration, worthless, deserving scorn. They deserve it. They deserve to be seen the way you see them, right? That is, that is what you've done. So without realizing it, you've made up your mind to see the worst of them in order to justify your thoughts and feelings and actions. So if, if suddenly I snapped my fingers and they are not so bad anymore, then you'd be wrong to feel the way you do. And we hate being wrong. To make sure that we are not wrong, we push a story where they deserve our contempt, right? We evade responsibility by blaming them. Okay. Now, a little framework that I developed um, to illustrate this justification phenomenon, okay? Now, this is a little bit abstract, and so I, I apologize in advance. Um, but it's just, it's the best way I can think of to explain and visualize what's happening here when we start justifying um, our feelings, the way we see other people. Okay, so picture every, every person, all right, you, you have in you a light. Uh, you carry this light within you, right? And this light, it's a special light, it, uh, it makes you feel at peace. It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's necessary to you functioning at your best. Without the light, you, you're, you know, you're, you're wandering around in darkness, right? Okay, so the light's essential, makes you feel good, and only you can decide whether it's burning bright or whether it's off. So that's your light. Okay, so now your light is affected by how you see others because how we see others matters. How we see others matters. Little tangent. Okay, so I listen to a lot of podcasts um, and one of them in their intro, they talk about like, hey, we don't do... You know, you know, we, we focus strictly on tools of, I, I think they're kind of like, um, they're basically like, like communication tools. And like, we don't get into, we don't get into like any of the ethereal stuff. We, you know, we, we're just practical. All that other crap doesn't matter, you know, and anyway, they're kind of arrogant in this perception of theirs. But I can tell you that having communication tools without having a handle on the way you see people, um, to me, to me, that's a real mistake. Um, to me, you will always fall short of mastery if you can't master uh, your heart 
And so um, anyway, I, I am diving into that stuff. And in fact, I'm not, you know, we're not going into any tools until, until this first stuff is mastered um, because, you know, it makes sense. And, uh, and I'm always right, naturally. We love being right. Okay, so we're talking about how we see others. It matters. Um, your light is affected by how we see others. So on one hand, you see others with, uh, with a heart at peace. You see others with humble curiosity. You see others even with a degree of love in various forms, not romantic love necessarily. Um, now, caveat here. Could you possibly see an enemy with a heart at peace? The answer is a resounding yes, you can. You can see, you can see people who have done atrocious things, who, who are by every objective measure bad. You can still see those people with a heart at peace. It doesn't mean that you condone their actions. It doesn't mean that you stand behind them. It doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you like them. It just means that you can see them without betraying the light that's in you. This is like Nelson Mandela, right? He did, uh, he was imprisoned for, I should have looked this up before I started, 27 years, I think. He was imprisoned but for 27 years for standing up for what he believed in. And then he was elected as the first black president of South Africa. And as part of his leadership, he, uh, he, <laughs> he exemplified a heart at peace by including people that would be seen to an outsider as his enemies. The people that, that stole his, really a big, big chunk of his life, right? Um, they gave him a life sentence to prison. He didn't spend his whole life in prison, but that was the sentence. Um, he had a heart at peace with them. He refused to give in to contempt. So real quick, real quick note. The funny thing about these lights that we have in us, these imaginary lights, uh, others, they can see if our light is on. So if we're in an interaction with another person and an outsider observes us in that interaction, they will see if our light is on. And if it's on, it will inspire them, right? That's, that's the Nelson Mandela effect, right? He inspired people because his light stayed on, even towards his enemies. Okay, so the other option is you see them with contempt. That is turning your light off. So you're seeing them as beneath consideration, worthless, or most commonly deserving scorn. Now it's often very much provoked, right? The, the, the person that we're seeing with contempt, a lot of times they provoked us to see them that way. They may have been prodding us along. They may have even wanted us to see them with contempt because it will justify their contempt, which may be unreasonable, but they don't have the choice to turn your light off. No matter how much they provoke, it is always your choice whether you turn it off. Seeing others with contempt is a betrayal of your light, and it hurts. It hurts. And when it hurts, we start searching for what to do next, right? Now, the other thing that, that causes, us <laughs> causes us some angst is 
other people, observers, they will see whether our light is off. They will know quickly if we see someone else with contempt. They will see that the light is off. And, and what will they think? What will they think of you for turning your light off? What do you do? Well, you've got a couple of different choices. And the first choice is by far the most common, and it's a mistake. The first choice is to basically go to war. You start blaming the object of your content, contempt. This is a very tempting thing to do because, <laughs> because if you can successfully blame the object of your contempt, then it makes your decision to put out your light reasonable. It makes it justifiable. And it might even persuade others to put out their light and to see that the object of your contempt with contempt of their own. It's a cycle. We've made a decision to see someone with contempt, and now, now we have to justify that decision by seeing the worst in these people, by finding every reason we can to say, look, this was their fault, not mine. I had no choice but to turn out my light. This is, this is the kind of war that, that we get into, and this is why most people say they don't want as their best friend, that person <laughs> that we were imagining moments ago in your life, um, you don't want them as your best friend because you might be too busy justifying your decision to see them the way you do. And if suddenly all those problems were solved, hmm, uh-oh, it doesn't make any sense for you to feel the way you do. Now, if you, if you have a heart that's at peace and you ask yourself that question, if you could make them your new best friend, uh, if you have a heart at peace, you might be you might be tempted to say, "Well, sure, why not?" But uh, most people aren't there, so that is the other decision, though. So the first decision is to go to war by blaming the object of your content for the way you see them. Um, the the other alternative is to turn your light back on. It's always an option to turn your light back on to change the way you see them, but it does cost something. It costs your pride. You have to accept, at least internally, that you turned out your own light. And as a result, you've done some harm to yourself and probably to the person <laughs> that you saw uh, with contempt. You've probably damaged their image a little bit and you have to kind of own up to that. And you have to own up that you were looking for the bad. You have to accept that, you know what, I may have been a little unfair, and I may have even contributed to this mess in some way. Once you do that, you're in a position where you can choose to just give up the contempt and feel peace towards that person. You just have to stop trying to justify. You have to stop thinking and saying negative things. I know, and it's tough because we love to gossip, but that's, that's what you got to do. Okay. Um, one one important word, uh, you notice I was, I was using the phrase, the object of your contempt. When you see someone with contempt, um, you are objectifying them. You, you're no longer seeing them as an individual, as a person who has feelings and who who's trying, um, who's trying, who has reasons for the things they're doing, even if they're stupid reasons. Um, 
you you refuse to see them that way. You re, you see them instead as as an object, and you have to transform that, um, get out of that rut, in order to turn your light back on. So here's the promise. If you choose to see others with a mindset of peace instead of a mindset of contempt, you will very quickly feel better. You will feel better, and that's because your light's back on. Nelson Mandela, he could have been consumed for the rest of his life, and I think most people in his shoes probably would have been consumed for the rest of his life with contempt. But he wasn't. He was at peace. He was a happy guy. Uh, he, was, he was an inspiring leader, uh, a, a magnetic, uh, you know, charismatic personality. He had his light on. So I want to demonstrate the light framework where someone chose on, even when they were provoked, to turn the light off. And this is the teenage driver story. It's great. This comes from a book... Oh, great. Now I'm blanking on it. This comes from a book called, um, oh, it was The Anatomy of Peace. Um, this was a it's, a, it's a great, it's a great book. I'd recommend it. The Anatomy of Peace. This is a story of a boy named Lou who was a teenager. Uh, he lived on a farm in, in uh, New York, just uh, on the border of the Hudson River, and it was an apple orchard. His dad worked extremely hard six days a week. Uh, around the clock trying to provide for his family uh, running this apple orchard and they had this old junky truck that was just so slow like it, you couldn't even get it up to normal road speeds and um, in fact Lou recalls thinking as a kid that the shoulder of the road was just like the truck lane or something because they always had to drive there so that the other cars could go around them um, so anyway, that's the truck. That's the family truck. They used this for all their work for many, many years. Over time, Lou's dad saves up enough money to go and buy a pretty respectable car. In fact, it was really nice. And his dad was really, he was really excited. I mean, you, can, you can't even imagine how happy he was to be able to, um, you know, to see some of the rewards of his hard work and and so they got this cool car, and Lou was very excited, and he says to his dad, Dad, I really want to take the car into town to meet up with some friends and, and maybe show it off just a little bit. And uh, his dad smiles, and he says, All right, Lou, go for it. And, um, you know, Lou was a responsible kid. His dad didn't have any reason to think that Lou was going to do anything crazy. Um, but his dad was a stern, kind of discipline-oriented father, and so anyway, Lou, Lou gets the keys, he goes out, he fires her up, you know, listen to that en engine hum, he's, oh man, he is just filled with excitement, ready to go, realizes though that he left his wallet inside, so he runs back inside to grab his wallet, uh, picks it up, runs back out, gets to the, where he had left the car, and it is not there. The car is gone, and Lou starts thinking, what? Did, it get, did the car get stolen? What, how is that possible? We live on this lonely farm. I was only gone for 10 seconds. And uh, then, he, then he notices some tire tracks. Now, he left the car on their drive, and their drive is on a slight decline. And the tire tracks, instead of going out towards the road, they're going down the slight decline 
and off the drive and into a small field and then into the river and he sees the headlights of the car just just going under the water getting submerged as he realizes where the car has rolled off to and he realizes that he did not put it in park he didn't set the brake and the car rolled all the way into the Hudson River and sunk <laughs> Lou is just numb right he's just numb he goes walking slowly back into the house you know probably thinking to himself maybe I should just run away or maybe I should just go jump in the river too oh you know he's hurting as, as bad as he had ever hurt before and his dad is sitting there in a wingback chair with a newspaper reading and he says Lou you forget something else and Lou realizes, oh man, I, I'm you know, I'm stuck. I've 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 got a choice here, and he stammers through his admission. You know, Dad, uh, I the car, the, the the river, the the car's in the river, Dad. It's all my fault. The car's in the river, and he bursts into tears. And his dad, not looking away from the newspaper grabs the corner of the page, pulls it over, <laughs> continues reading his story, and he says, well, guess you'll have to take the truck then. And then threw him the keys to the truck. Lou walked out. He got in the truck and started driving into town. And on this drive, is overcome with emotion, pulls over to the side of the road, and just just sobs, tears. Uh cannot cannot express uh, cannot imagine how you know, how he must have been feeling in that moment but he describes this as a life-changing moment because it was clear that to his dad he mattered much more than a car his dad loved Lou a lot more than he loved the car Lou knew that not only that just Lou having a good day mattered more than the car. Now, <laughs> the dad's wisdom here uh, is pretty incredible. I mean, he, this is like the ultimate provocation to talk about how irresponsible a teenager is. But he, he didn't go there, despite the provocation, to see his son with contempt, to see him as an object, as, as being worthless or deserving scorn. The light stayed on, the dad wasn't bothered, and an already hurting son was spared more hurt. The dad probably knew that Lou, you know, after going through that, he was the last person that was ever going to put another car in the river. He didn't need a lecture. Um, the dad saw his son with no contempt, even when provoked. So that's a moving story. I, I love that story. Okay, moving on to our Stop Hitting Yourself segment. This is where we're getting into the in-law story. Um, this came to me from, it's actually, I'm really surprised. This came to me from a source, someone I haven't talked to in years, um, who heard that leaked episode and shared this with me. But the funny thing about this in-law story is it is just so common. I did divorce mediation for a while, and <laughs> I, I think probably half of the time there was a story that was just 
on parallel tracks to this one because it's just so common. And since I since I got this since I you know since since this person reached out to me, I've heard similar stories with slightly different details probably two or three times over the course of the week. Um, so anyway, this is really common. It's going to sound familiar to just about everyone. Um, so this is the story of my fictitious characters, uh, Mary and Martin. Uh, they're, they're new um, made-up names here. And their son named Mickey. So Mickey marries Zoe who coincidentally turned out to be the best for about two years. Um, Mary and Martin, Mickey and Zoe, they all just had a great time. Uh, they'd, they'd go vacation together. Uh, things were good. Things were really, really good. And then, unexplainably, Zoe just became the worst, like practically overnight. They had a baby. This Mickey and Zoe had a baby. And this was the first grandchild for Mary and Martin. They were filled with excitement during the pregnancy and eagerly anticipating the arrival of their sweet grandchild. But just before the baby was born, Zoe cut off Mary and Martin from, from Mickey and from the unborn child that was just about to arrive. They were not allowed to be part of, of the labor and delivery, the, you know, well, not that like you have to be allowed to do that. Um, the, you know, they weren't welcome at the hospital. They weren't welcome to come see the child. Um, and this goes on for months and eventually years. Um, the only communications between Mary and Martin and Zoe were the occasional stinging text uh, full of accusations and judgments, um, reiterating that they were not welcome in, in her life or her husband's life or her, their child's life. Um, there was, uh, unmistakably, there was, there was a war afoot, and um, Zoe was determined to keep Mary and Martin out of, out of her family's life. Uh, going to pretty extreme lengths, even um, when Mary and Martin mailed some gifts to their house. They lived in different states. Um, Zoe threw away the birthday gifts that were mailed and sent a, sent a text, a picture of the gifts in the trash can, unopened, um, purposely trying to provoke them. So after being beat down... Um, and not really purposefully, but, well, they were beat down purposefully, but uh, Mary and Martin began to see Zoe with contempt, um, and that was not necessarily on purpose. They were just so tired of feeling so much sorrow. They really loved Zoe, and they really loved Mickey, and they loved this child that they had virtually no contact with, um, this grandchild. They had felt such deep sorrow and such a longing to to be there but that sorrow they got tired of bearing it and so they traded it in for contempt because it was a lot easier to say well to start finding fault to start blaming zoe for all the pain that they were feeling now now it's true that 
they might they might have been right to think that this was all Zoe's fault. That may be true. <clears throat> but once this mindset changed, Mary and Martin found lots and lots of super convenient justifications that seemed to make them feel better about the way that they saw Zoe. They they started Honestly, it's almost like they were doing a little bit of digging of their own. They found out that Zoe was struggling with addiction, a pretty serious alcohol addiction. They found out that she was really struggling as a mom, that Mickey was doing most of the parenting, almost all of the housework, and the breadwinning. The negative feelings towards Zoe escalated under this mindset, and the hurt that they felt worsened. It worsened a lot. Uh, Mary and Martin basically resigned to thinking that nothing can change unless and until Mickey and Zoe divorce, which hasn't happened yet. And they don't have any control over that. So for now, it's just the status quo. We will continue to look for, <laughs> well, they're not consciously doing this. This is kind of an unconscious thing, but they are continuing to look for justifications for the way that they feel towards Zoe. All right. So um, the thing that was moving about this for me uh, when I was reading this story was it was really obvious to tell how badly it hurt. It was really obvious to see how, whew, I mean, just, just how palpable the pain was for Mary and Martin. The issue is clearly a hot button issue. And although this is probably the most painful subject in Mary Martin's life, they find themselves talking about it often. It makes their blood boil, and every time Zoe comes up, their light goes out. So, how do you resolve this, right? All right, ADR man, how do you resolve this? Uh, well, easy, you just get Zoe to change, of course. Uh, obviously, that's like uh, not likely to happen, right? Good luck, good luck to just get her to change all of a sudden. So that's option one is, you know, try to get Zoe to change, but it's not likely to work. Number two is to do nothing. Just continue hurting indefinitely and being miserable. That option is frequently chosen, despite it being probably the very worst choice. Number three, and this is the only one that really they have control over, Mary and Martin can change themselves. But wait, you say, they aren't, they aren't the problem. They are in the right, and Zoe is in the wrong. Well, guess what? Being right doesn't hold any benefit for Mary and Martin. It solves nothing. In fact, being right only reinforces the contempt they feel. Because now they can make the justification that Zoe's wrong. And it fuels the fire. So real quick note on being right. Being right is way, uh, oh, it's way dangerous. I was talking to a neighbor of mine, great guy, and I said, hey, I'm not trying to rat out anyone. I'm not trying to be a nosy neighbor or anything like this. But I just thought you may want to know um, that your daughter will frequently pull in front of my house, park the car, and she's smoking. And I, don't, I didn't know if you knew. And, and I'm not trying to get her in trouble. I just thought, you know, a parent would, would probably want to know this um, because it was clear to me that she was trying to be very secretive and sneaky about it. And so he says to me, you know, I, I suspected that. 
I suspected that. And um, he says, I tried to confront her and it didn't really work. So he says, I'm going to I'm going to have a talk with her. So a little while later, I, I get back with him and I say, hey, how did the talk go? And he says, not good. It was a train wreck. It's funny because he <laughs> he is also he is also a smoker, uh, you know. So he he says to her, he says, yeah, I approached her and I said, daughter of mine, you've got a problem. Smoking is horribly addictive and it'll kill you. You know, all of my major health problems can be traced back to my decision to start smoking. So you've got a problem and you got to fix it, girl. I mean, I'm right about this. I know from experience that this is a bad choice. Well, it didn't go over so good. The It didn't help at all. In fact, it just hurt the relationship more. And in this case, there is clearly a right and a wrong, right? The dad is right. Smoking is really harmful. He's right about that. There's, there's objective scientific evidence, uh, lots of peer-reviewed research, and, and it's just pretty much general consensus now that smoking is bad for your health. Um, and here she is, you know, young teenager picking up a habit he sees as dangerous. So yeah, he's right. But guess what? That doesn't change anything. That doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't fix anything that he's right. In fact, the daughter probably knows he's right. But that doesn't matter to her. Being right was not as important to her as her reasons for smoking, which who knows what they were. There had been literally zero explore, exploration into why she started. But those reasons were more compelling to her than than being right about the, the dangers of smoking. So anyway, that's just a side note. We get caught up in being right, and very often resolution is <laughs> is the, the sacrificial lamb of being right. Uh, we refuse to try and work things out because we're right. It takes a certain level of intellectual humility to to move past being right or wrong and being humbly curious and figuring out what the other person's story is and then diving into that. So anyway, that's being right. So okay, go back to back to our story. What what can what can Mary and Martin change that will actually help? Well, they can change their mindset. They can turn the light back on. They can abandon this contempt that they feel for Zoe and stop looking for justifications for the way they feel towards her. They can find peace in the way they see Zoe and hold on to it, no matter what stupid, hurtful, crazy things that she may do in the future. They can still see her with a heart at peace, like Nelson Mandela did. Okay, so important, important note. When you're at peace with someone, you can still be hurt by them. You will still feel sorrow, and it will be deep. But you refuse to trade in the crushing weight of sorrow for this mirage, this, oh, what is it? It's like a, it's like a soul-cankering anesthesia of contempt. You know, this, the pain we feel when someone hurts us it's like we can numb it. It's like we can feel a little bit better if we trade that in for contempt because it, it kind of justifies, you know, it, it says, you know, it, it blames other people. We're not responsible for this feeling. It's, it's all them. But contempt and the justification that follow, that's just a mirage. I mean, that is a mirage of resolution. It is pretend peace, and it won't last. It will leave you searching. 
It will never satisfy. The only way to satisfy that, the only way to really scratch that itch, is to see someone with a heart at peace. So, even if Zoe never changes, Mary and Martin can get back the part of themselves that they lost by letting go of the contempt that they feel. So here's the promise. And this is, this is, this is like the bonus. This is like the cherry on top, the frosting on the cake. By changing ourselves, we invite change in others. It is the most likely way of getting Zoe to change. If they can view her, transform the way they see her, if Zoe starts to get a whiff of that, it will allow her to lower her defenses, to feel safe enough to change, to, to, to become curious herself about whether they might actually be good for her child, um, to have a, a, the openness that she has, has lacked up to this point. So that's the promise, guys. I mean, if, if, if we can change our mindset, change the way we see others, that really invites change in others. And if we can acknowledge our role in a problem, that, in, that really is disarming, and it invites others to, to do the same. So that's, you know, that's, the, that's the, the benefit here. Besides stopping the pain you feel, you get a major benefit, and maybe even the resolution, the ultimate resolution you're looking for. So that is the invitation for today's show. Give up the contempt that you feel towards people in your life. Stop hitting yourself, right? This is like the ultimate stop hitting yourself. You're not hurting them as bad as you're hurting yourself when you look, see someone with contempt and try to justify that. You're the loser. Stop losing. See people with a heart at peace. Find your humble curiosity. Start feeling better now. I want to hear your stories. You can email the show at um, our email address. Yeah, send them to stories at thetybrownshow.com. And uh, go ahead and subscribe to the show. Share this thing. Um, we can't launch a, a revolution with, with, with uh, a small crowd here. So if there are people that, uh, you know, friends, family, whatever, that you think you might uh, like to share it with, please do have them subscribe. And um, we'll share the stats next show. Thanks for listening.